Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. It's clear that on some level, Putin accepts the, the legitimacy of what Prigozhin did. Not the case he made, but I think in some ways Putin himself is still in that medieval or early modern mindset. Yes, Prigozhin tried and failed, and he therefore has to be squeezed out of the system. But nonetheless, there was something legitimate about that that particular type of show of force. I think it's really important understanding what happened here uh, is this idea of the adhocracy which you've written about before uh, and you've come onto the show and talked about, and I will attempt to sum it up and please tell me where I'm wrong where the, 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 the way the Putin system kind of works is that he kind of lets everyone know vaguely what he wants and where he wants things to go. And then everyone underneath him kind of competes to make him happy and to achieve these goals. Uh, Right? Is that kind of what's going on? Yeah, I mean, this is it. He's Putin is not the sort of person who, except when it comes to handing out uh, major business opportunities, doesn't tend to micromanage. I mean, in some ways, what we've got is look two two states. There is you know, most of Russia. One can think of as a modern institutionalized state. There are ministries. There are laws. Blah blah blah. Just atop them is this medieval court in which precisely everyone is trying to basically keep the boss happy and guess what the boss is going to want tomorrow so that they can be ready to deliver it. And another aspect of the adhocracy is in some ways what your real job is may well have nothing to do with your official title. Basically, your job is whatever Putin wants it to be today. So this is why you've got the head of Rosneft, the the, the oil company, who basically runs policy towards Venezuela. Or in this case, where you actually have a restaurateur, contract caterer, and then troll farm meister, who then finds himself running a mercenary company, which apparently, and it's worth noting, Prigozhin originally did not want to do. When the Kremlin went to him in 2013, because they wanted a mercenary organization to provide kind of deniable operations outside, you know, essentially it was originally envisaged as being in Africa and Asia and Latin America, Prigozhin at first didn't really want to do this. But the point is, he depends entirely on Kremlin contracts, Kremlin favor. So ultimately, if Putin wants him to do it, he does it. And suddenly, he's also a mercenary commander. I was wondering about Prigozhin's understanding of Putin. I mean, it sort of goes both ways, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Putin understands the people he appoints and sends them in whatever direction he thinks. Uh, I guess he must think that they are both loyal and capable of doing what he's being they're being sent to do, right? Um, yes. Or, yeah. So doesn't that mean that Prigozhin also knows Putin to a certain extent? I'm just wondering about 
how he might have thought that he was going to win, whether it's a medieval kingdom that, that we're talking about or not, how he thought he might actually pull this off. Two things, really. One is, I mean, we must remember Prigozhin is not really personally close to Putin. Sometimes it's suggested that, that he's, no, he's not. He's not one of Putin's friends. He never socializes with Putin or whatever. He's someone who is absolutely Putin's creature because he has risen from being a hot dog entrepreneur on the streets of St. Petersburg upwards to a considerable extent on Putin's coattails. But that's the whole point. He was just simply one of the useful go-to business people you turn to when you want something done, rather than someone whom you go on holiday with, like Defence Minister Shoigu, for example. So I think there there is a limit to how far Prigozhin necessarily understood Putin. But the key point is, this has worked before. I mean, and the best example being Ramzan Kadyrov in, in Chechnya. I mean, Chechnya is technically part of the Russian Federation in pretty much every practical sense. It is an autonomous kingdom run by Ramzan Kadyrov. And not just that, but run on Moscow's dimes. It's 90% of the Chechen budget actually comes from federal subsidies from Moscow. So basically, Putin pays Kadyrov. And Kadyrov keeps Chechnya quiet. But every time there's any thought of a challenge to Kadyrov's authority, or more often, people thinking, maybe we could spend a little bit less money on vanity projects in Chechnya. That's the point when Kadyrov does something like invades a neighboring Russian Federation subject in, in the North Caucasus or otherwise causes trouble or just simply begins to muse about, oh, maybe it's time I retired. And because Putin and co have convinced themselves that Kadyrov is really the only person who can keep Chechnya under control, I think they're wrong, but they never thought to ask me. Well, then he basically gets to call their bluff. And suddenly at that point, it's reconfirmed that the money will be available and, and such like. So, I mean, in this respect, Kadyrov, even while loudly proclaiming his personal loyalty to Putin, in practice extorts Putin periodically for his own gain. And everyone knows that. I mean, look, there are other examples, but for me, that is the best example of someone. And remember, Kadyrov also has his own private army of the sort of things that happened that could give Prigozhin, who, let's be honest, was, was also desperate. I mean, this was his last throw of the dice. So I think it was also, to a degree, you convince yourself that the only thing you have at your disposal actually might work. But nonetheless, I think there were some reasons for Prigozhin to think that it could work. I think you've, you've lit on something else I want to make clear here, is that to, I think to Western audiences, the prosecution of the war in Ukraine looks slapdash and stupid, um, disorganized. And I think part of the reason why is because of this adhocracy. You said that Kadyrov has his own private army, right? There are, you instead of having like this one top-down force that's invading a country that's controlled by like a couple different people, like you would see uh, in most Western militaries, you have a bunch of different power bases with their own with men that are loyal to them, right? Which is part of what we've seen here. Yeah, absolutely. So can you explain uh, the reason that he, that, that Prigozhin thought that this was his last throw of the dice? This army was about to be taken away from him, right? Yeah, I mean, this is, in some ways, it's very, very karmic in the sense of the very same system this constant divide and rule 
ensuring there are multiple overlapping institutions doing various things so they're constantly competing and Putin can play them off against each other. It's been very successful at keeping Putin in power, in effect, for 23 years, including his little interregnum notionally as prime minister. But transplanted to a big war like this, it has proven absolutely disastrous. As you said, so there's the regular military. Even within the regular military, there are those forces which used to be part of the so-called People's Republics of Lugansk and, and Donetsk, which are notionally now within the military command structure, but we know that there are serious issues and little sort of personal fiefdoms within that. There is the National Guard, which has a diminishing role at the moment, but nonetheless you know, is present on, on the battlefield. That reports to a totally different commander, General Zolotov, one of Putin's former bodyguards and something of a favourite. And it's clear that when they're given orders from the joint commander, if it's a big sort of major sort of shift or just simply the people on the ground don't like the order, they will refer it to Moscow to get Zolotov's okay. Technically part of the National Guard are Kadyrov's own forces. Although in practice, we know perfectly well that Kadyrov tells them what to do. And if the joint commander wants them to do anything, he has to basically ask Kadyrov nicely to give the orders. And then you have Wagner and indeed a selection of other mercenary units under all sorts of different subordinations. You know, in this context, absolutely, it's, it's deeply dysfunctional. One of the reasons why they made Colonel General, uh, sorry, General uh, Valery Gerasimov, the chief of general staff, overall force commander. I mean, as if it's <laughs> chief of general staff, you'd think is a fairly full-time job. But anyway, they also made him this, was precisely in the hope that this would somehow fix the problem. And it didn't, because when it comes down to it, the only person who can bang heads together and get all these people to, to work together is, is Putin. And Putin's not willing to do that. The point is that this can't be addressed in isolation, because this is just simply the Putin system in a particular context rather than anything else. Putin can't fix it on the battlefield without fixing it within the political system as a whole. And he doesn't have the will or probably the energy to actually be able to reform his entire system. So in some ways, the Russians are stuck with this. And so from Prigozhin's point of view, yeah, he saw this as much as anything else as just simply a rivalry between two power bases. He had for a long time been launching this really vicious campaign against Defence Minister Shoigu and Gerasimov, calling him everything, you know, competent and a traitor, a day after his family and you name it. Now, that that was a bad move because Shoigu is, of all the figures within the Russian elite, he's the one with the longest track record. I mean, he, he predates Putin and he's also a very, very subtle and effective political operator. And particularly one of his characteristics is you never actually see him, shall I say, working. I mean, he never campaigned for any of his key jobs to suddenly, magically, it happens. Likewise with this, you know, we didn't actually see anything happening. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, things start going wrong for Prigozhin. Wagner is barred from re recruiting any more convicts from the labor camps, which have been a key source of not, not very good, but actual soldiers. Prigozhin starts to lose key government contracts, so it's an attack on his money. The governor of St. Petersburg, whom Prigozhin had also been attacking, gets a sort of vote of confidence from Putin. And most crucially of all, Shoigu manages to persuade Putin that all mercenaries need to sign a contract with the Ministry of Defense. 
So it's not as if Wagner would have disappeared, but it would have given Shoigu a lot more control over it. And I think that was the point that really forced him, because the, the, the deadline was going to be the 1st of July for everyone to sign. And from Prigozhin's point of view, this was basically a takeover bid by a rival. If it went through, he would find at least part of his business empire essentially neutered, and the one that particularly for the moment is politically significant. But again, he was thinking of it through the prism just simply of two big beasts competing for the favour of the pack leader. And he thought that he could somehow convince the pack leader that he was going to be the one to back. This feud between them goes back to at least 2018, right? Can you tell us about what happened in Syria? Yeah, I mean, this was, I mean, in some ways it started even before then. Look, when, when the Russians went into Syria in 2015, it was envisaged and also sold to the Russian public as being purely an arm's length air power operation in support of Bashir al-Assad's regime in Damascus, which at that point was looking as if it was going to collapse. So in they went, it very quickly became clear that in fact the Syrian military was in a catastrophically bad state and needed some kind of additional forces being brought in to give them some backbone, particularly if they were going to be doing urban assaults, which is something that's quite hard to actually send demoralized troops into. So they thought, well, okay, we're going to use Wagner, which up to now has simply been used as a deniable force in the undeclared conflict in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass. And so we're going to use Wagner as this precisely because we know full well that the Russian public would be very unhappy if we then went on and deployed Russian army troops, because then every casualty, it would be a flag draped coffin being brought home and, and such like. This way, even though Wagner is, I think it was at the time, 98% made up of Russian passport holders, and the, the rest being sort of a few Abkhazians and some and similar. But the point is, we can say, no, no, it's something to do with us. It's a private military company that's contracted to Damascus. And that may, you know, every casualty is just simply a, you know, a tragedy, but not a state issue. So it was deniable, but deniable to the Russian public rather than the outside world. And that actually worked surprisingly well. The Russians provided air power. Wagner provided sort of some technical particular proficiencies on the ground, like uh, forward air control and such like, but also actual assault troops for things like this, the move on, on Palmyra and Aleppo and so forth. After a certain point, the Syrian military started to recover. It's getting better. It's regained its confidence. And from the Ministry of Defence's point of view, and this is about 2017, they didn't feel they needed Wagner anymore, continued to sort of spend huge amounts of money, especially because Prigozhin, Prigozhin does not play well with others. He you know, threw his weight around, his guys threw their weight around, they were being paid a lot more than the, than the Russian soldiers there. No one really likes them. So there's a point where they said, OK, that's fine, you've done your job, end of, end of the contract. The problem, and I'm sorry it's a long story, but uh, you know, unfortunately it's, it's, no, it's one that has sort of a lot of necessary twists and turns. At this point, though, the Kremlin thought, but actually we would like Wagner still to exist. It's shown itself to be quite useful in two conflicts now, and we can see all kinds of different possibilities for a mercenary organization that in practice is is at the disposal of the Russian state, but officially is nothing to do with us, mate. So who knows when we might need it again? So they turned to Prigozhin and said, we want to keep Wagner in, in, in place. Now, from Prigozhin's point of view, he can't say no to the Kremlin. But on the other hand, hold, running a mercenary army is an exceedingly expensive proposition. So since he doesn't want to basically 
bleed out his entire personal fortune on this. He's looking for alternative ways of funding it. So what he does is in what presages the way that Wagner's going to operate in Africa later, he turns to Damascus and say, look, you hire us for real this time. And the way you'll hire us, we know you haven't got any money. That's fine. We will just simply take a 25% share in the profits from any oil and gas fields that we reconquer from rebels. From Damascus's point of view, what's there to lose? Nothing at all. From Prigozhin's point of view, because he hopes that Wagner is going to make some of these conquests, there's a chance for some real long-term action. Because the point is, you know, this this was not just simply be a kind of a one-off payment. This will be a, a, essentially a 25% stake in chunks of the Syrian hydrocarbons industry. This leads Wagner to take part in a distinctly ill-judged uh, offensive in the Deir Zor region, where as part of a sort of a joint Syrian forces, pro-Syrian or Damascus forces, pro-Damascus militia and, and, and Wagner elements, they, they try and take on territories that were controlled by Kurdish re- rebels. Unfortunately, Kurdish rebels who worked very well with the Americans and where there were American special forces embedded there. So this posed a direct threat to American forces. The American commanders got on their deconfliction line to their counterparts at Khmeimim, the airbase where the Russian official contingent was based, and said, look, we see this force that is approaching us. Are these your guys? And the Russian commander said, nothing to do with us, mate. At which point, jamming cut in and a massive and frankly, very kind of performative, I would suggest, display of American firepower ensued. Everything from Apache helicopters to drones to artillery to even, I mean, even through B-52s in, in, in what can only be described as sort of cinematic overkill. And Wagner suffered losses. Now, we don't know. Some people say it was it was in the dozens. Some people say it was in the hundreds. We don't know. But nonetheless, shortly thereafter, essentially, Wagner pulled out of Syria. It was clear that was not going to work for them. And from that point, Prigozhin felt that this was a deliberate act on the part of the defense ministry. He thought he had the okay from Moscow to be involved in this. And that carried with it the implication that when it came down to it, Moscow would would basically support Wagner's operations there. It would not just simply, you know, in effect, tell the Americans to go ahead and hammer them and then do nothing after the event. And do you know what? Prigozhin's probably right. I suspect this was Shoigu punishing someone who had got too uppity and too much of a challenge. But anyway, so from that, you know, essentially everything that Shoigu did, Prigozhin would interpret in terms of some kind of personal attack. Prigozhin, it's worth noting after all his background, he spent most of his 20s in the Soviet labor camp system, running with gangsters and a certain amount of the kind of the code of the so-called Vorovsky Mir, the thieves world, the professional gangster sort of culture clearly rubbed off on him amongst which is pretty obviously that sense that you'd never, ever forgive and forget a slight. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
so Putin doesn't usually forgive or forget slights either. Uh, the reporting today was that uh, Prigozhin might actually be in St. Petersburg. And uh, uh, that, in fact, the deal that Lukashenko brokered may have broken down already or it was never intended to carry out. Just wondering what you think Prigozhin's long-term survivability is at this point, if you were taking bets. And I, and I must point out, since we're talking about this right now, that he may not be being flung out of a window, but they have no problem publishing his selfies. Oh, those were amazing. Yeah. And and let's not forget, yes, the Whigs precisely. Um, no, I mean, this is clearly part of a campaign to embarrass and undermine him. You know, it's, it's worth noting, it, it, it can't help but have been quite galling for Putin to see that when Wagner pulled out of the city of Rostov-on-Don, the population was out there applauding them. I mean, actually, you know, Prigozhin is not, I would suggest, kind of wildly and widely popular, but particularly in the areas most affected by the war. I think actually there's the idea of someone who sort of stood up for the ordinary soldier. You know, there's a whole mythology that's built up around him. You know, is 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 quite strong. So I think yes, there there is now a desire to bring him down and make him out to be some kind of you know self-aggrandizing corrupt wannabe. But yes, I mean, I think in terms of long term, look, I certainly would not necessarily be advising anyone to be offering Prigozhin life insurance. I don't think he's imminently in danger. I think at least for a while, the state will try and embarrass him and take his businesses away from him and so forth, but not necessarily hurl him out of a window. Precisely because otherwise, if you ever found yourself in that situation again of having to make a deal with someone, you would not be able to sort of carry it out. But on the other hand, in, I don't know, a year's time, especially if Prigozhin has not been more useful and convenient for the state. but. You know, when 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 the dust has settled, it may well be that there'll be some sort of likely lads from from the GRU, military intelligence, or the FSB, being told you know pay, pay a visit to his nearest doorknob, um, and 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 smear this on it, and 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 so it would go. Hey there, angry planet listeners, it's me, Matthew. Thank you for listening to that. That was a like a twenty minute segment of a subscriber only. Uh, conversation we did with Mark Galliotti. Um, he's got a lot of really amazing things to say about Putin and kind of the medieval structure of the Kremlin's court system and how it interacts with Wagner and like what he thinks might happen. Uh, the whole thing's about 50, 55-ish minutes long, uh, and you, too, can listen to it if you go to angryplanetpod.com or angryplanet.substack.com sign up for $9 a month gets you access to uh, the subscriber-only feed, and also commercial-free versions of all the mainline episodes. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for signing up. Really appreciate it. We will be back uh, a little bit later this week with another conversation about conflict on an angry planet. Stay safe until then.